For just one corporate job, only four to six people will get an interview for every 250 resumes received. Those aren't very good odds if you're counting on that job. The fact is, you need a real person advocating to a real employer that is a real job, and that's where Express Employment Professionals come in. Express is your local resource to help you get a new job. Express has more than 18,000 jobs available weekly. That's 18,000 jobs that need to be filled right now. Find your nearest office at ExpressPros.com, and Express never charges a job seeker to find employment. Your locally owned Express office can connect you with available jobs in your community. On ExpressPros.com, find jobs in manufacturing, accounting, customer service, sales, distribution, and information technology, you name it. Visit the nearest Express office today to speak with hiring professionals connected to the available jobs in your community. Visit ExpressPros.com today to find a location near you. ExpressPros.com. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Kevin Randall back with us. He's got a winner here. Kevin has for more than 45 years studied UFO phenomena in all various incarnations. His training by the Army and the Air Force provides him with a keen insight into the operations, protocols of the military, their investigations into UFOs. He has investigated many, many cases and has been a regular guest here on Coast to Coast. His latest work is called Encounter in the Desert. It is about the Lonnie Zamora case that you just heard a little clip about from the History Channel. Truly remarkable. Kevin, welcome back, first of all. Good to have you again. George, it's wonderful to be back. I haven't talked to you for literally years. (laughs) What an incredible story. I mean, we've lost Lonnie. He passed away a couple years ago. Yes, he did. My gosh, I mean, you talk about credibility and understanding an investigative procedure. This, this guy had it all, Kevin. Lonnie Zamora is a very credible witness. He got within 30 feet of the, the object. He reported on the beings, the creatures that he saw about it. Uh, there really isn't much place to go. Now, for a long time, I thought the problem with the story is it's a single witness. It's just Lonnie Zamora. Nobody else saw anything. Nobody else heard anything. Turns out that doesn't that isn't true. We're going to talk about a lot of different things and get some new information from you, but you have investigated and looked at, Kevin, in your career, many, many cases. What made you select this one this time? Well, the interesting thing was uh, I was hosting a radio show on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and I got two guys on there, Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. We were talking about the Lonnie Zamora case, and they said something to me that, that tripped me up. They, they said that they had... Uh, there had been three people who had called the police station prior to 5.45 in the evening about this object they had seen in the sky or this flame they had seen in the sky, and I had never heard this sort of thing before. And I asked them a couple of times. I said, did you look at the police logs? Did you look at the police logs? And they never got an answer. They kind of went off on a tangent. Because of that and uh, a, a controversy over the symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw on the craft, I got interested in it, so I went back and started looking at the Project Blue Book files and looking for information that would corroborate the idea that there were additional witnesses, and I was able to find that sort of thing. And they back up what he said. Yes, yeah, well, the the, the descriptions they have, but what was important was um, uh, on on the night this happened, April 24th, uh, Army officer, sorry, Army officer, uh, Captain Richard Holder, and an FBI agent interviewed Lonnie Zamora in the police station. And I'm looking through this, and I find a half-page report that uh, Holder had submitted to his superiors at the Pentagon that talked about the police station getting three telephone calls from witnesses about what they had seen. Mm-hmm. 
Incredibly, nobody followed up on that. No, that's bizarre. But I was able to find corroboration of that story that there were three additional witnesses that had called in. I'm thinking in 1964, if I was there, and we know the path the object took, it would have been easy to find those people because Socorro wasn't that big of a town. And you had the path, you could go knock on doors and find those people. But nobody ever followed up on that. I just found that incredible. The Lorenzans, Carl and Jim Lorenzen, who uh, ran the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, were there within 48 hours. NICAP had Ray Stanford there uh, within a couple of days. J. Allen Hynek and uh, David Mooney from the Air Force Project Blue Book mm-hmm. were there. Wasn't it this case that kind of turned Hynek around and making him more of a believer? I think it had something to do with it, absolutely. And it also interesting is Hector Quintanella, who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book, in his memoirs wrote that this is a case he wanted to solve. He wanted an answer for this one because he knew the hobbyists would just go nuts because here's a case of a landed craft and alien creatures. He couldn't find an answer. And if he could have found anything that would have suggested that it had a terrestrial explanation, he'd have been shouting it from the rooftops. And he always said that he thought that the answer was in Lonnie Zamora's head, meaning that he had seen mm-hmm. something or heard something that would have solved it for him, right. but he couldn't find an answer. And, and uh, Quintanella went to Holloman Air Force Base, which they were doing a lot of back, black projects in White Sands Missile Range, looking for this. And he had orders from um, his higher headquarters letting him to see all the, the top-secret materials so he w- could go anywhere on those bases and look at any of the projects they had going on and could find nothing that would account for the Zamora sighting. Do we know what kind of police officer Lonnie Zamora was? Did he have any problems or any record or anything like that? It seemed that um, the local youth didn't like him because they gave him speeding tickets. Well, that happens. Yeah, you know. Um, recently, and this really annoys me, there's been suggestion that Lonnie Zamora drank a lot. As a way of how did that pop up? I don't know where it came from, but I can't think of a police officer or a military person I know that hasn't had a, a drink once in a while, which doesn't, of course, affect their competence. Well, and, and, and if it affected him, they surely would have reprimanded him, and it would have been in his file, and we all would have known about it by and, now. And he continued on as a police officer for a number of years after this event, and later on he finally, um, I guess, retired from the police force and took up, up another city dro- job until he retired. He was a member of the New Mexico National Guard, and he retired from that, so he had a lot of things going for him. All right, let's kind of review a little bit first, Kevin, uh, before we get into some of this incredible new information that you've got. So Lonnie Zamora is speeding, chasing a car. What happens? He uh, hanging back from the car. He thinks he knows who the driver is, but he hangs back from the car because he wants to get a good reading on the speed, not using radar, obviously, and he hears a roar in the distance. He thinks a dynamite shack is blown up, and he, and he decides that's a much more important thing to go, and he heads out to the uh, outskirts of town, driving up uh, uh, hills and down that sort of thing on the sand, not really on roads, and he comes over uh, uh, top of the ridge, and he sees below him this thing that he thinks is an overturned car, and he tries to get up the hill a couple of times. He gets back, uh, gets over the top, and is heading on down. Uh, eventually stops his car. He realizes it's not an overturned car. He gets out and he walks down toward the area. And according to everything that I can find, and I think this corroborated by some of the other people that investigated earlier, he got within 30 feet of it. So he got a good look at the darn thing, and he got a look, good look at the uh, 
alien creatures, thought they were the size of a 10 or 12-year-old boy, called them, called them kids or small adults, was what he saw. Um, when they spotted him, they seemed surprised. They ran around behind the craft. There was a sound like a hatch closing. The thing took off in a roar and disappeared in the distance. He called the uh, police station. He hoped that he could get one of his colleagues there to look out one of the windows and see the thing in the sky, but I think the, the windows of the station were oriented improperly, so they couldn't do that. And he asked for his friend, uh, Sam Chavez, to join him out there, and Chavez got out there in a couple of minutes. There is a discussion that, that Chavez may have seen the thing in the distance, but Chavez would not tell anybody about that. And I think that was evolved out of the treatment they saw Lonnie Zamora getting people kind of making fun of him for seeing flying saucers and little sure. men type. Was there any evidence, any indentations, any burns in the, in the ground that uh, they were able to see or get? There were landing gear traces. There were four landing gear traces on the ground. When they made their measurements, they realized these weren't excavations. It was something that had been heavy, had been pressed into the ground, so it wasn't like Lonnie Zamora got a shovel out and dug some holes to make it look good. There were a couple of circular marks uh, there that they thought might have been some kind of a ladder that had come out of the craft, and there were some kind of footprint-type things there that uh, Richard Holder, who was the uprange commander, the, the um, stallion station commander at White Sands, which was uh, his duty station was closer to, to Coral than it was to Alamogordo, so he was he was one of the first people called in. You've got um, uh, Sam Zamora, I'm sorry, Sam Chavez getting there, looking at this. He sees the indentations. Um, there's a bush that seems to be smoking as if the uh, scorched, scorched. But it wasn't. It was it was cool to the touch. It was smoking, but it was cool to the touch. And later analysis from samples they took found no evidence of any kind of an accelerant. There were no petrochemical evidences on it, so they don't know what caused it to, to burn and smoke. It was burned grass around it as well uh, that they took samples of. The holder took samples. The thing that kind of made me laugh about this is I, I was wondering what happened to the samples that Holder took, and Ray Stanford says that, that when he was out there and Heineck was out there, Heineck didn't have anything to collect samples, and he thought that was odd, but I learned that Holder gave all the samples that he had taken to Hynek, so he had plenty of samples that were taken that very evening that the thing took off. Anyhow, the thing takes off and disappears in the distance, but there were a number of other police officers and uh, officials that came out. Holder got out there that night. Uh, the FBI agent, Burns, Arthur Burns, got out there. Burns uh, said, or in Holder's report, it says, uh, don't mention that the FBI was involved, <laughs> which I thought was kind of Now, funny. this happened five years before we landed on the moon. Yes. This area, I'm told, was also a testing site for the lunar landers, that they would test them, they would, you know, they, they would come down with their engines running, uh, and uh, they'd have parachutes, but they would land and then maybe take off again. Rule this out for me, Kevin. Not, not in 1964. Okay. Uh, when they were, what they were testing at White Sands at the time were lifted um, by helicopters. No, you would have seen that or heard it. Absolutely. And I, I, I think there was all... In fact, uh, Quintanella said that, that that was what they thought, and he checked into that and they couldn't find anything. There was apparently a test of some kind of the lunar lander earlier in the day. But this was um, one that they had to lift by helicopters. They may have been testing them with... Uh, the engines running in California, but they weren't doing that in New Mexico, and there's no record to show 
that it was a lunar lander or anything being being flown out of White Sands or out of Alamogordo that would account for it as well. So we're, you're going to rule that out then, that, it, that he saw a lunar lander? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, the chief of Project Blue Book ruled it out. And uh, I, I think that is a, you know, a very credible thing because here's a guy that wanted to explain it, but he ruled out all these experimental craft. And I can't think of anything that we'd have been testing in 1964 that would have been top secret in 1964 that we wouldn't know about today. I mean, that's 50 years ago. Exactly. And, and you think about in 1964, you go back 50, you know, 50 years, you'd be talking about biplanes that didn't have much of a way of, uh, um, that weren't very reliable and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I mean, in today's environment, I, there would be nothing that would have been classified then that we wouldn't know about today that would account for this. Nobody's been able to find anything. Kevin Randall with us. His latest book is called Encounter in the Desert, the case for the alien contact at Socorro, talking about Socorro, New Mexico, and the police officer Lonnie Zamora. Uh, Until the day he died, he never changed his story, did he? No, but he was very reticent to talk about it as well. I had a friend, Bob Cornett, who um, was interested in astronomy. He he and I had actually studied astronomy at the University of Iowa, and he uh, was going to the Very Large Array, which is out in the Magdalena area of New Mexico on the plains of San Augustine, the uh, enormous radio telescope array. And he was... SETI's, right? Pardon me? SETI's, I think, isn't yeah. it? It's, it, but it's not that far from Socorro. So he's in Socorro, and he looks up Lonnie Zamora in the phone book because he's interested in UFOs as well and calls him. And Zamora says, well, we're having a, pic, uh, a barbecue. You're welcome to come down, but we're not going to talk about the flying saucers. Huh. So he's very reticent to talk about it. I talked to a fellow named Paul Harden. He talked a little bit more about it, I think, right away, and then he stopped. I think the first night, literally, was interrogated by the FBI and the Army. Um but the story got out, and there was uh, Burns, who was the FBI agent, said, don't talk about the little guys because, you know, people make fun of you. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. So from that point on, he was very reticent to talk about it. The, the uh, impression I get from the documentation that I was able to see was that he and Sam Chavez both thought it was some kind of a black project, something terrestrially based, and he would get in trouble for talking about it. So he was very reticent. What did he think the little alien creatures were? He described them as, uh, he used the term people at one point. He called them persons. He suggested they were uh, uh, children of 10, 10, 12 years old, small adults. So they're clearly where he was thinking of them in terms of humans as opposed to humanoids. But little people. Little people, smaller, smaller than average. So at no point did he think... Boy, these are strange alien grays or anything like that. No, no. The, the impression I get from reading all the documentation, from talking to people that, that knew him and talked about that, um, he just wasn't thinking in the terms of alien creatures. He was thinking in the terms of something terrestrially based. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.